hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. This week, we have a special panel to discuss uh, program directors of residency programs in the United States, why one would be interested in being a program director, how you can produce, uh, pursue this passion, and some of the issues affecting disparities in program directors and how they're represented. Um, I'm joined by three program directors from throughout the country, Drs. Um, Jessica Chow from Yale University, Dr. Fosca Oretta from Johns Hopkins, and Dr. Nandi Gandhi from UC Davis. And we had a roundtable telephone discussion to discuss this and many other issues. Remember, you can find a list of financial disclosures in the episode description. You can also find information to claim CME credits for this and other podcast episodes on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Simply click on the link in the episode description, and it'll take you to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website, and there'll be instructions on how to claim your credits. Generally, it's about a half credit per episode. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by three residency program directors from around the country. First, in alphabetical order, Dr. Jessica Chow, who is an assistant professor at Yale University. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Next is Dr. Nandini Gandhi from University of California, uh, Davis. Nandini, thank you for joining us. She's an associate professor there. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Dr. Fosca Warreta, who is a residency program director and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University, part of Wilmer Institute. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. So for this podcast, this is a retina podcast, but my second love is medical education. So we've done various episodes on medical education. So we're going to talk a little bit about some points about being a program director, uh, how it kind of works to kind of move up the ladder. And um, we'll start with some background. So all of us are, all, all of you from, you know, not from retina subspecialties. So we'll kind of go around. Um, Jessica, first of all, just for the listeners, um, we usually talk about why somebody chose to pursue ophthalmology in their subspecialty. So um, you're a cornea specialist. Um, why ophthalmology and then why cornea? Um, I really got interested in ophthalmology during medical school when I did a research year. It was actually in basic science at the time, which is not something that I do anymore. Um, but I got interested in the basic science of ophthalmology, and then I shadowed several ophthalmologists at Duke, which is where I went to medical school, and um, really enjoyed the clinic and the patient population and the outcomes. And that's really why I went into uh, ophthalmology for the mix of surgery and medicine, for the outcomes, and for how happy both the doctors and the patients were. How about you, Donnie? Uh, you know, I actually came to ophthalmology through an interest in pediatrics. Um, I was interested in the pediatric population and working with the pediatric population in med school, um, but was also interested in having kind of a procedural aspect to my career. Um, was lucky to have a mentor who was a pediatric ophthalmologist and really felt like peds ophthalmology was um, a way to combine um, an interest in pediatric population, talking about development, school, um, all that kind of stuff, but also um, retaining a surgical element to my career. Fosca, how about yourself? Um, so for me, Jay, I was a med student at Hopkins and I was interested in public health, so I really saw how in ophthalmology there were so many public health opportunities. Originally, my family's from Ethiopia, and uh, my great-grandmother was actually blind from what I think was total exfoliation glaucoma, and my grandmother was able to come to the U.S. and get treatment, medical treatment, and have her cataracts removed and was not blind. So I really saw 
it as sort of a nice public health um, opportunity for myself. And then the mentorship from aspiring faculty. And then as Jess mentioned, sort of the life-altering surgeries. And then I really enjoyed the longitudinal patient care relationships. And I think cornea in particular, I really thought the surgeries were among the most beautiful and elegant and precise surgeries in, in ophthalmology. And also corneal blindness is a major cause of uh, blindness globally. So again, sort of my public health interest drew me to the specialty. Great. And now, now we're going to transition to talking about being an ophthalmology program director. Um, so all of you are relatively early in your career, but definitely showed an interest in being a program director early to have reached the rank you have at this point. So I'll let Nandi start. So first, why were you motivated to become a PD? And then we can kind of get into what does it mean to be a PD? What are kind of the, the big responsibilities and kind of the things you take on besides obviously, you know, the residents and the medical students see people running just the interview day, but whatever kind of things PDs are doing behind the scenes that maybe people aren't aware of? Um, sure. I, I can, I'll start with the first part of the question. Um, in terms of why I became um, a program director um, I, or why I became interested in, in residency education. Um, I had the great fortune of having a wonderful example during my own residency. Um, Tom Oding was my program director at the University of Iowa, and I felt that he really modeled um, a way to craft a program that was truly resident-centric, um, a, a way to be creative about how to meet the new kind of um, learning techniques that the trainees are coming with, interested in responding to. Um, and it also just seemed like an interesting, creative way to think about how to meet residents' needs professionally, clinically, surgically, personally. Um, and it seemed like a program director role um, was one way to um, add that dimension to my own kind of daily clinical and surgical work. Um, I was... Uh, really lucky to be brought on as an associate program director, um, which I did for five years. Um, and so that really helped me kind of learn the ropes, get a sense of what the work is like, um, get a sense of what the administrative component of the job is like before actually taking on the reins of, of program directorship. So I, was, I felt very lucky to have had that opportunity. How about you, Fusca? What inspired you? You know, so Nandini said a, f a lot of things that sort of echoed with me. So first, my own program director at Wilmer, who was J.P. Dunn, he was program director there for over 10 years, and he really, seeing his dedication, he taught us our first cataract surgery, so that was very inspiring for me personally. And then um, I think coming back and being assistant chief of service, um, which is sort of a post-fellowship role we have at Wilmar where you really spend the year dedicated to teaching all years of residence. So for the first years, teaching them the basics of ophthalmology. For the second year, teaching them their first open th surgeries. And then for the third years, doing cataract surgeries with them, them sort of um, helped me know early on in my career that I loved working with residents. And then after that, I became also associate program director for five years, and that really showed me what the job would be like. I was able to attend AUPO meetings, our graduate medical education meetings, um, see what our program director, what the job really entailed. So I think that really sort of um, was a natural transition for me when I became program director because I, I sort of knew the job, had worked with residents. Um, also, I did the um, cataract and uh, cornea curriculum, which again, sort of, um, and mm -hmm. I did formal education courses that we had at Hopkins for educators. So again, all of this prepared me. And then at the end of the day, I think it's just a, a sort of a level with working with residents. I think, um, you know, we're lucky that they're in ophthalmology. It's such a competitive specialty that the residents we get are 
excellent. They are very hardworking, eager to learn, and you know they were really sort of my motivation for um, becoming the program director. Jess, I'll let you kind of finish, and then we can kind of transition a little bit also into talking more about what are what do you have to do as a program director? What does it mean to stay compliant with ACGME? Like. I feel like there's a lot more. My, my sister, for example, was a program director for a fellowship in interventional radiology reviews. And listening to her stories, it, I think it's a lot more work than anyone really realizes. Um, so a little bit about your story and then also about what your day-to-day looks like. Sure. Um, so I have to give a shout-out to my old program director as well. I do, uh, Pratap Chala, who's been program director probably for almost 20 years now. Um, but um, he was kind of a, a mentor, a role model, and his calm and and the, in the OR, his demeanor, and his total patience with working with residents was really inspiring to me. Um, but one of the reasons why I became a program director, I was always interested in medical education. I also did a chief uh, postgraduate year at Duke. And during that time, that was sort of my introduction to the ACGME and all the paperwork involved and all the nitty gritty of running a program. Um, I wasn't um, able to transition into being a program director as the way that Nandini and uh, Fosica were in terms of being an associate PD, but I did have a very good associate PD with me when I first started out as PD at Yale, and that was really helpful as well. Um, and plus, our GME um, office was extremely supportive for new program directors and really helped me learn the ropes when I started out. So I became program director uh, two years into my time at Yale and um, have been uh, in the role for the last six years now. So I think I'm really starting to become a little bit more comfortable with the role at this point. Um, one of the reasons um, why I find this role so incredibly rewarding is just being able to see a resident go from a beginning resident who barely knows how to look at the eye to a fully-fledged, competent, excellent surgeon, ophthalmologist, and physician by the time they graduate in three years. And it's always amazing every year at graduation to see how far they've come to be able to look at them in the operating room and just sit to the side and watch them do their thing. You know, it's, it's really rewarding to see that. And also to know that anytime you train a resident, you're not only impacting your own patients, you're impacting every single patient that they're going to treat in their careers as well. So that's one of the reasons I find it so rewarding. In terms of the nitty-gritty daily uh, how to run a program, I think the most important thing is to be really organized in terms of the academic calendar. So every month you have to do something different. Um, July, you're meeting the new residents getting to know them, doing your PEC uh, meeting, which is the Program Evaluation Committee meeting, coming up with the, um, the uh, filling out the ACGME um, ADS, getting ready to fill that out. And then every single month after that, I'm not going to go through the entire academic calendar unless you want me to, but <laughs> there's a different thing <laughs> that okay. has to be done every month, <laughs> and you just kind of, you just know it year after year that that's what has to be done every 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 month then you just follow that calendar it's also really really helpful to have an amazing program coordinator so I've been lucky enough to work with two really good ones in my career and uh, they really help a lot yes and I'll just second that too that we have an amazing program coordinator who's been at Wilmer longer than I have so I do think that's um, really makes the job and the transition um, very um, much easier I agree 110%. 
um, my program coordinator uh, just came up to me today and said, hey, we need to, we need to start thinking about orientation, um, which is six months away. And um, it made me realize how I, I think that um, I agree with, with everything Jess said. There's so many things about which you have to be proactive um, in, in program directorship, um, whether it be you know, planning ahead for uh, resident-related events, planning ahead for um, putting together committee meetings or uh, reporting to the ACGME. And then there's like this whole reactive side because stuff happens during the, the academic year um, that you can't predict. Um, whether it's HR stuff or, you know, issues with residents um, and being organized on the proactive side about things that you know are going to come up um, makes it possible for you to have the bandwidth to, to deal with the reactive, the things that you actually necessarily have to react to. So we did a recent study, which is just kind of a cross-sectional study looking at ophthalmology residency program today and characteristics. And one of the things we found is even though we see actually more women than men entering ophthalmology residence residency now for training, we still have a major, a vast majority of the program directors are still men. And, and maybe that's naturally going to transition as, as generations pass. But we have here three people, again, early in the career who identified an interest in residency education, um, but are, and you guys are essentially underrepresented relative to the proportions of residents that there are. Um, so my question is not so related to, to diagnose why this has happened, but kind of looking forward. How can we kind of continue to foster and mentor women to, to fill these roles as we go forward in the future, Nandini? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that I think that my hope is that um, the the change at the level of the trainees will translate into a change at the level of faculty composition, which will then lead to a change at the level of program leadership, both at the program director and chair level, um, and that, that the change at leadership is just lagging behind in time. Um, but you heard all three of us talk about how important our own program directors were in um, being role models, um, in, in kind of showing us the ropes and, and perhaps even identifying us as like, hey, you're interested in medical education. Let me tell you what's possible. Um, and so I think, that, I think that to the extent that we ourselves can, can pay that forward and act as mentors to um, residents um, especially female residents who exhibit an interest in medical education um, and get them involved early on. I think that that, in my mind, um, it feels like one of the most effective ways that we can um, achieve more parity at the program director level. Um, the AUPO is a wonderful meeting um, as well. And so I think getting residents uh, involved in either projects that they can present, getting a sense for them about what the nuts and bolts of program directorship are, introducing them to the program director community, um, would I think also be another channel by which we can get residents involved early on. What do you think, Jessica? So I totally agree with what Nandini just said. And I think right now the composition of academic ophthalmologists in the United States is about 33% or one-third uh, women and two-thirds men. I'm not sure about the exact statistics of program directors. Maybe you could let us know that, Jay. So it was about, um, but it was I, about three I, quarters, one yeah. quarter. Three quarters, right. one quarter. Okay, so it's sort, it's pretty close and not exactly. Um, but I do think that it, it reflects right now the composition of academic ophthalmologists. And also the thing is, at a lot of programs, you actually do have to be an associate level uh, professor to be selected as program director. That's not true at Yale. It's not true at Wilmer. But a lot of other um, um, programs, I think, have that requirement. So I think... As women go up the ranks, I do think that more of 
more women will become program directors. I, I believe that's going to happen. Pasca, you agree? And, you know, for at Wilmer, we just matched our second class of all five female residents. So I completely agree with um, well, uh, my colleagues about the composition changing. Um, I think the role of associate program directors is, is relatively new. Like at Wilmer, this, in the last five years, we had we created two positions for associate program directors. And my program, mm-hmm. um, when I was chief, my program director actually, um, after that year, um, selected me to be the APD. So I think that was a great way for her to mentor me into sort of um, becoming a, a future PD. So I think, you know, we should think of our associate program directors as sort of future PDs and we can put women in that role to mentor them as well. Um, and at, our, at Hopkins, our associate dean for graduate medical education is actually a female, and she's a great role model and really has changed sort of maternity leave policies um, at our institute. So I think just making it, um, you know, continuing to make medicine a more supportive environment um, is, is a great way to sort of encourage encourage that as well. So you brought up the match, and so it would be remiss to not ask three program directors about matching ophthalmology residents. So let's kind of snake this back. Fosca. What are kind of the big, we just finished with the match last week, a uh, super exciting time for the residents out, uh, the match medical students out there. Um, and already, you know, we have the next class that's thinking about match next year and the future years. So what are kind of the biggest things in short you look for in residents who you're interviewing or who are applying for a residency position? Um, yes, Jay. I think that this is probably one of the hardest parts of my job because we get over 500 applicants and then we interview about 40 and then we select five. And um, as we all know, the you know we get stellar applicants and it's really hard to, we, I'm sure all of us here spend a lot of time going through the applications and selecting. So I think what we look for is um, sort of the next generation of leaders um, in whatever capacity that may be. So they may be research superstars. I mean, actually, I have been noticing in the last couple of years when I asked applicants, you know, what are their career paths? I do hear some people say residency program directors. So I think that's exciting. So leaders in, um, acad- in the academic world, education, Policy is sort of what we um, look for to train at Wilmer. And then obviously excellent um, clinical, uh, you know, clinical uh, taking care of patients in medical school, demonstrating the diligence, hard work, all of that. But I think for us, it's really those who demonstrate leadership potential and also collegiality, being able to work well with other people, um, because that's, as we know, is so important during residency. You know, Jessica, Fasca referenced the, the research component. I feel like now, and maybe you guys feel the same way, that it's it's super impressive when you look at these applications. People are publishing more and more research is becoming more and more. I mean, I feel in a way, it's when I review applications, it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish applicants because they're all so talented and and, and really, there's a, it's a really deep pool. We just came off a really great year for Match, uh, and its future is very bright in ophthalmology. So what sort of things do you look for? And again, how can we better, I mean, I'm always thinking, how can we make the process better in terms of as distinguishing applicants as we get such great applications and we're again narrowing down from big numbers to small numbers for interviews? Well, you know, I do think that research is an important component, but it's not just the volume of research that you do because that can reflect the institution that you come from. For example, a student who comes from medical school with a great ophthalmology program is going to have the opportunities that someone who comes from a school that does not have an ophthalmology residency program wouldn't have. And so um, I think part of it is understanding what program they come from, what sort of opportunities they had, and what they've achieved with those opportunities. 
And that sort of um, is related also to the emphasis on uh, diversity that we're looking for nowadays in ophthalmology of uh, residency program um, applicants. So, you know, we're looking uh, for people who have basically overcome um, to achieve what they have achieved in, in their careers. And that's very impressive. And that's definitely something that we consider as well. Anthony? I wish I had a pat answer for this really, really difficult <laughs> question. I, I feel the same way. Um, I think it's so challenging. Um, I, I agree with um, what what been said. This is the hardest part of my job, I think, um, distinguishing applicants from one another in a pool that is so so talented um, and, and really so accomplished. Um, I want to echo what Jess said. I We, we do get applicants um, from different schools with different um, uh, whether or not they have an ophthalmology department. Um, some of them have to travel two hours just to the nearest ophthalmology department to, to do whatever research they happen to be doing. And so um, I, I agree that it's not so much about the volume as much as it is looking at the individual circumstances and recognizing um, what's been accomplished given those circumstances. What that means is it makes the process a lot more difficult because it's not just about looking at numbers and filing based on grades and numbers. I think um, it really does take... Um, it really does call upon us to, to look at each applicant as an individual to the extent that we can. Um, I really, I find it really compelling um, when an applicant just demonstrates passion um, within the field of ophthalmology uh, and, and has seen that to some sort of fruition and done a deep dive, whether it's through education or through research or through advocacy. Um, I just, I, I find that really compelling and it makes me feel like somebody who would be a leader in the field in the future. Great answers. And and so final thing. So when we kind of touched on this a little bit, but we talked about mentorship. We talked about how to kind of foster interest in people interested in medical education, but kind of parting words. And uh, I'll let Nandini, you go ahead. If you had someone, if you have someone who's out there listening, who's a resident, a medical student, a fellow who's like, you know, I, I really think I might be interested in this. What should they do? What sort of resources are available? What sort of things should they try to attend? How can they continue to foster this interest as they go forward in the future if they are thinking about maybe being a program director one day? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that just starting with a conversation um, between myself and the resident would be a nice starting block just to kind of give uh, the resident a sense of what the nature of the work is, um, that it's a combination of um, didactics and curriculum building, but also um, the administrative component as well. Those are all great points, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. We all appreciate your time. Have a great night. Remember that you can find this podcast and all other podcasts on our website, retinapodcast.com. We have all 213 episodes there sorted by category. There are also links on the website to subscribe for our mailing list so you get these episodes as they come out. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Twitter handles at Retina Podcast. And you can find us in the Apple and Android store, and that's how I subscribe to get the episodes directly to my mobile device. We love feedback, and you can contact us by emailing us directly at retinapodcast.gmail.com or by clicking on the Contact Us link on our website. And we love the reviews people leave in the Apple and Android store. Remember, feedback is what gives us the idea for episodes going forward in the future. Many thanks to Dr. Chow, Dr. Wilred, and Dr. Gandhi for joining me for this podcast. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Michael Vinicasa for preparing this podcast episode. 
And thank you so much to you listeners for the patients you see and care for every day, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs>